0: Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a while since I uh, sat here and recorded some original content with you. We've been doing lots of interviews and uh, getting back onto the podcast schedule after the birth of my third child on December 1st and my travel schedule, which was completely paused for all of December. And so we're a little bit behind our usual two-episode a week schedule, but we're gonna be jumping back onto that. So if you're a faithful listener, uh, thank you for staying with us. Uh, We apologize for the break in the content in the show. We are here in Virginia the day after the March for Life, which was uh, Friday, January 20th. And so while we're here, we wanted to kind of return to an old episode, but kind of new and improved. We did an episode over a year ago called Abortion Defenders in Their Own Words. And it was one of our more popular and helpful episodes because, you know what, pro-lifers aren't the only ones who say the unborn is a human being from the moment of conception. Pro-lifers aren't the only ones who call abortion killing. Pro-lifers aren't the only ones who point Out and observe that Planned Parenthood uses sex ed and sexually charged conversations to propagandize the youth and sell abortions. Pro-lifers aren't the only ones who point out that the arguments for abortion work equally well to justify killing infants and the cognitively disabled. Abortion defenders admit all of this as well. So, I've done the work for you, (laughs) since you don't have the time or energy, and I've gone and found all of these admissions from those who profit off of killing babies or have built a career defending killing babies. So you can quote these evil but intellectually consistent abortion leaders to your pro-choice friends the next time you're in a debate over abortion. Buckle up. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. So we did this over a year ago, as I just said, but we added some more here. And I think this will be helpful to you. Um, We'll go ahead and put these together somewhere, maybe on Patreon for our patrons or in a newsletter. So you can kind of have access to these as well. So we're just going to kind of burn through some of these and you can, you know, save this episode to return back to um, or download the PDF when we make it available just to have all of that firepower available to you. Um, Because, you know, sometimes the left, they say the quiet part out loud. They say what we all know to be true, but what you're not allowed to admit when you're on the other side, right? This is why ideology is a hell of a drug, right? And, and the left has done such a good job suppressing reality, suppressing the truth, censoring the facts, labeling anyone who would speak the truth as the dangerous disseminators of misinformation, conspiracy theorists, science deniers. Um, and yet every once in a while, someone says the quiet part out loud. So uh, let's burn through a bunch of these. Did you know in 1963, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, produce a little health booklet, a sort of marketing piece for families. And I, I we actually have the scans of this booklet. So they. This was before Planned Parenthood was really performing abortions. Remember this. So many people don't know this. Many people think that Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to perform abortions. She didn't. She founded it to sell birth control and to propagandize birth control, particularly to minority classes and those that she called um, unfit to live, or she called them human weeds and defective stocks that that prevent the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Um, so. The the abortion side, the actual killing of babies who were already conceived, that was a later iteration of the culture of death and of Planned Parenthood. Now, whether Margaret Sanger always wanted to go that direction or not, conversation for another time. But in 1963, Planned Parenthood published a booklet. And on that booklet, it says this, quote, an abortion kills the life or ends the life of a baby after it has already begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. Isn't that fascinating? What are the two things that you're not allowed to say today if you're approaching it? What are the two things that get that get denied, suppressed, and attacked anytime someone says it? Well, one, that it's a baby and that abortion murders a baby. And secondly, that, hey, actually, abortion's kind of dangerous to your life, mom. Like, to your health. Like, it's actually, it's actually not safe for you even if you don't care about the baby. Those are the two things that they will deny to their grave. And yet the organization is admitting it in 1963. Look at that. Um, let's, go, let's, keep, let's continue. Dr. Frederick Robbins was a noted figure in population research. Um, right? So remember overpopulationism, there's too many people, right? This has been like a long obsession of secular Marxists and, and uh, revolutionaries. And, you know, of course, if you haven't listened to my White Rose Resistance message that we're doing a national tour for right now, Um, Margaret Sanger was fascinated by this idea as well. She was heavily influenced by Neo-Malthusianism, which refers to Thomas Malthus, who was the first overpopulationist, right, who who said that food production can't keep up with population growth. With the the inevitable result being massive starvation, we're all going to die, so we got to do something about that. We have to determine who's fit to live and who's unfit to live, who should be allowed to reproduce and who shouldn't, right? So she was heavily influenced by these people. Uh, Then Paul Ehrlich wrote wrote the book Population Bomb in 1964, and he was a board member for Planned Parenthood. You hear that? Repeating the same lies about overpopulation from Thomas Malthus in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Okay. So Dr. Frederick Robbins was part of this movement, right? Of, of research into population growth and, and trying to prove through science somehow that, that we're going to reach a bomb point, a population bomb point where the world cannot sustain that level of people or our resources can't, right? Uh, and so in, in, to make sure that millions of people don't die, we have to kill millions of people. Right, exactly. you got to peel a bunch of babies to make sure that a bunch of born people are not killed because of this threat. So, Dr. Frederick Robbins once justified Planned Parenthood's dependence on unsafe birth control products, meaning he knew that some of these birth control products were dangerous for the women, and here's how he justified it. He said, quote, the dangers of overpopulation are so great that we may have to use certain techniques of contraception that may entail considerable risk to the individual women, end quote. There you go, an ally for Planned Parenthood saying, oh, well, I mean, but screw it, screw it. We have to intentionally endanger the health and lives of the very women that we say we exist to serve and, and provide health care to. Um, because if we don't, the sun god is going to be angry at us and he's going to burn us all up because there's too many people and we're harming his earth. Mother Earth, Mother Gaia, right? Have you noticed how religious the left actually is? It's it's, it's much more kooky and spiritual than Christianity, actually. Much more superstitious. Um, okay, let's see. How about Alan Guttmacher? Oh, right, the president of Planned Parenthood in the 70s uh, and the namesake of the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, a pro-abortion organization, one of the largest ones, by the way. Um, when Roe v. Wade was decided on January 22nd, 1973, and enshrined abortion law through point of birth and its companion case, Dobbs versus, I'm sorry, Doe versus Bolton, a reporter, and this is this, this interaction was reported on and recorded at the time, a reporter walked up to the president of Planned Parenthood, Alan Gumacher and said, Dr. Gumacher, how can we protect abortion and ensure that it's not overturned? How do we protect Roe? How do we make sure that this is permanent law? The president of Planned Parenthood responded with two words, sex ed. So for those pro-aborts that say pro-lifers are kooky conspiracy theorists, when we say that, what what do I always say? Um, Sex ed is their sales funnel, abortion is their product, and your daughters are their prospects. For for the people who scream that we're like conspiracy, like oh those weird pro-lifers, they think that Planned Parenthood people are trying to like, like seduce and sexualize children through health education so that they'll have more sex and so we can sell more abortions. Weird conspiracy theorists. Well, the president of Planned Parenthood just said that the way you keep abortion legal is sex ed. (laughs) For goodness sakes. Um, And then then he was quoted on May 3rd, 1973, quoted in Humanity magazine, the August-September 1979 edition on page 11 in the All About the Issues, Quote, the only avenue the International Planned Parenthood Federation and its allies could travel to win the battle for abortion on demand is through sex education. End quote. Alan Gumacher, president of Planned Parenthood. Holy bleep. Yes, they admitted it. Abortion defenders in their own words. Uh, here's a Planned Parenthood staffer from 1953 uh, in a piece called Psychosexual Development, Planned Parenthood News, page 10 from 1953. Um, by Lena Levine, Lena Levine, quote, our goal is to be ready as educators and parents to help young people. What? Get contraception, practice safe sex, encourage abstinence. No, no, no. Quote, to help young people obtain sex satisfaction before marriage. By sanctioning sex before marriage, we will prevent fear and guilt, end quote. Planned Parenthood. Oh, wow um let's continue here uh oh yeah you guys remember mary calderon the medical director for planned parenthood in 1964. isn't that interesting that some of these dates how they line up remember that planned parenthood booklet that said it ends the life of a baby after it's already begun 1963. paul Ehrlich writes the population bomb in 1964. he and he's on the board for planned parenthood um mary calderon leaves planned parenthood in 1964 as their medical director. And she starts the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States, otherwise known as SICUS. SICUS. And if you've been a long-time listener to this show, you've heard us talk about SICUS, right? Monica Klein has come onto the show, the former Planned Parenthood sex educator, who's now a Christian pro-lifer who says she's doing penance for the damage that she wrought onto children and families. So Mary Calderon starts the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States with seed money from Hugh Hefner, and with a board member named Wardell Pomeroy. Now Wardell Pomeroy was described by Time Magazine in a 1980 interview as being part of the pro-incest lobby. And he told Time Magazine in that 1980 interview, quote, incest between children and adults can sometimes be beneficial. So he's a pedophile. And he would later go on to be the director of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. And we, we, Kinsey is for another episode. We've covered him before. He's a demonic, pedophile, pedophilic, um, sexually addicted demon. Oh, by, by the way, do you know how Alfred Kinsey died? From masturbating too much. I'm, I'm actually not joking. Okay? This, I'm sorry if you're listening to this show with your kids. You should know by now not to put this show on the car in your van with the kids. The guy died from jacking off too much. He killed himself. Okay. So Wardell Pomeroy former director of the Kinsey Institute, board member for the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States, founded by the medical director for Planned Parenthood. Right? Okay. Guess who today writes, develops, and sells almost all of the curriculum in America's public schools for sex ed that brought all the mama bears and papa bears to school board meetings in the last two years, which led Merrick Garland to label them domestic terrorists? CKIS. And they hold, SECUS holds a consultative status at the, uh, at the United Nations um, and will use that status to approach impoverished countries. By the way, Planned Parenthood holds a consultative status there as well. And they'll approach impoverished countries and say, like, hey, we're going to give you aid. The only requirement is that you let us run your sexual education programs. Okay. So Mary Calderon admitted this. This is quoted. This is a book called The Family Book About Sexuality. (laughs) Can it be any clearer? They want to sexualize the family? It's called The Family Book About Sexuality, written by Mary Calderon (laughs) and Eric Johnson by New York Bantam Books in 1981. Quote Mary Calderon says, quote, mere facts and discussion are not enough. They need to be undergirded by a set of values. What's she talking about? She's talking about sex ed. She's saying, mere facts and discussion are not enough. She's saying our conversations about sex need to be undergirded by a set of values. Whose values? Planned Parenthood's values, see? (laughs) Oh boy, I I hope everyone listening has got a barf bag in their car. hope everyone's okay right now. Here's Planned Parenthood's former medical director, not Mary Calderon, another former medical director, named uh, Louise Trier. Quote, she says, quote, every medical contact should be utilized as an opportunity to offer the option of contraception. Every medical contact, like with a person, interaction, should be utilized as an opportunity to offer the option of contraception. Um, well, but, but what, what if that's not what they want? What if they're there for something else? What, why because there's an agenda, right? To, to sell contraception. And as I was recently fact checked by PolitiFact for pointing out on Instagram, um, that this has always kind of been the goal. It was to actually saturate the country with birth control that they knew had high failure rates because contraception and birth control convinced us that consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. Isn't that the whole point of contraception right? It's like, well I didn't consent to preg- I didn't consent to get pregnant. I wasn't using a condom, I was using a diaphragm I was using it on birth control. So contraception sort of ripped ripped sex from its procreative telos and put the culture of death on steroids. <laughs> right? so, and so I pointed out that like, actually, actually, and I put citations for this, the widespread use of contraception actually increases the unwanted pregnancy rate because you have way more sex when you think you don't have to endure the consequences of your sexual decisions. And what's that consequence? Hey, well, it's a person. It's a, yeah, it's a baby. Um, and so the unwanted pregnancy rate actually rises, and so the abortion rate rises as well. I, I haven't shared this publicly yet, but uh, I got messaged on Instagram when I put that post up, making the point I just made. You can go to my Instagram, by the way. By the way, you guys have to type in Seth Gruber Official, the whole freaking username now, and I or I won't show up on Instagram. Thank you, Instagram for not giving me my verified blue check mark, even though I've sent you screenshots showing that people are impersonating me on Instagram. Very cool, thank you. Meanwhile, if you're a leftist Marxist piece of crap and you've got 500 followers, you can get a blue check mark and be verified. Anyways, I digress. I get a, I get a, mess, a message from a writer for PolitiFact um, saying, uh, Seth, can you please um, send us some facts and data to back up your claim? Um, that abortion, that widespread use of contraception and birth control actually increases. Let's read this. Hi, Seth. I'm a reporter with PolitiFact and we're fact-checking your recent post that claims more contraceptive availability leads to more unwanted pregnancy and thus more abortions. Her name is Samantha Putterman. So far, we could find no reputable evidence that supports this. Instead, it appears that most unintended pregnancies result from not using contraception or from not using it correctly. Do you have any other sources that you can possibly share that support your claim? Thanks very much in advance for any assistance, Samantha. So here's how my team responded per my um, uh, requirement. Hi Samantha, (laughs) I said, we will definitely provide you with more research. But we just ask if you could provide us with Politifact articles stating why abortion is not healthcare, why only two genders exist, and how the mRNA jab was tested with aborted baby cell lines. Thanks, Seth. Uh, of course, Politifact has no articles that cover that because um, you need to understand the fact-checking industry is a branch of the liberal establishment's trunk. Um, it's used to um, to lie with the veneer of scientific credibility. Okay. Uh, You need to understand this. And of course, um, within hours of of my message to that PolitiFact uh, writer, guess what happened, guys? That Instagram post got flagged with a PolitiFact fact check, false warning. And right after that, there's an entire PolitiFact piece now um, from the same writer, Samantha Putterman, um, quoting me as the reason for the post to debunk my dangerous dissemination of misinformation. Um, so you guys can find that it's called PolitiFact more access to contraception increases abortion on demand question mark. No, that's not right. And they, and they cite me and they say in that piece that I refuse to provide further research. No, I actually did say I would if you would provide me with articles covering what I asked and you wouldn't do that. So what's my point? What's my point? Uh, This has always been the goal. This is why Planned Parenthood's medical director that we're talking about right now, Louise Trier, says, quote, every medical contact should be utilized as an opportunity to offer the option of contraception. And we're going to do a future episode with some experts, (laughs) another overused word in the last two years, um, with people who are very entrenched in and soaking in this data um, about, one, the dangers of contraception to women's actually health, um, but also how it's used to actually increase the abortion rate. Okay, wow. Let's move a little bit quicker here. Um, so they want right they want to, they want to help kids realize sex satisfaction before marriage. They want to use every contact as an opportunity to sell birth control. And Mary Calderon says that um, these conversations need to be undergirded by a set of, our, of values, of course, um, their values. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, remember her? <laughs> the most pro-abortion Supreme Court justice in American history, bar none. Um, the feminist slay queen, right, that they all love. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg told New York Times, by the way, she she, she defended partial birth abortions on two different occasions, um, two different Supreme Court cases. Um, whose titles are slipping my mind right now. I'm too short on sleep. I usually have them to to recall up for memory. Um, But uh, one was a a state-level law that wanted to ban partial birth abortions, and it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't ban partial birth abortions. And then another one, that after partial birth abortions were banned, they reexamined the the question as to whether partial birth abortions should remain banned. So in one case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted to keep partial birth abortions legal in this state, um, and the other Supreme Court decision was after Bush's partial birth abortion ban. Uh, and she voted to rescind or, or reverse the ban on partial birth abortions. But she didn't, she, she didn't have enough votes. The Supreme Court kept that ban in place. But she was on the wrong side both times. Remember, partial birth abortion, second or third trimester, you deliver the baby by their legs, forcibly delivered. But you leave the head and the shoulders in the vaginal canal. And then you take Metzenbaum scissors and you insert them up the vaginal canal and you stab the baby in the back of the, the neck, the head right here, and you open those scissors to create a hole in the baby's head and you stick a suction vacuum catheter tube into the back of the head and you suck the brains out and so the head collapses. Um, and we have photos from my friend A.J. Hurley um, who who exposed partial birth abortions at the Washington, D.C. surgery clinic by Cesare Santangelo, the baby-murdering demon who works there. Okay. Well, that's who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. So she's a real demon. She's not a pro-choice moderate. She told the New York Times in a 2009 interview that Roe, meaning what? Roe v. Wade, was a product of eugenic philosophy. Here's what she said. Quote, I had thought that at the time Roe was decided, there was a concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of, end quote. Now, whether Ruth Ginsburg was saying, when Roe was decided, I was concerned about the population of people we don't want too many of, it's actually beside the point. Whether she's saying she believed that or not, we it is clear what she's communicating. She said, I thought that at the time Roe was decided, there was concern. So whether she was concerned about that or not, conversation for another time. But she's saying, it was obvious to me that there was concern amongst the people behind Roe v. Wade and legalizing abortion at the federal level who were concerned about population growth. So once again, just to, just to remind you that all these people were on the same team. It's not like George Soros and Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all these billionaires who fund eugenics are, are, are like detached from the larger abortion industry goals. They're all on the same team and she's saying that. She was like, oh yeah, all the population growth, the overpopulationist people, the, their, their philosophies and ideas are the large reason why Roe happened. And, and, and particularly, there were people who were, who were concerned about certain people groups having too many kids, right? Uh, uh, populations, quote, that we don't want too many of. Wow. Well, there you go. So, so when you defend kind of where these ideas came from, you know, and the demonic people behind them, it's not just me, me saying that. It's Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that that was a large concern of, of the time and what, and what ended up driving the federalization of abortion. Um, here's an interesting one. Her name's Penny Lane. I don't know if that's her given name or what she goes by. It's like the Beatles, right? Penny Lane. So I don't know why she chose that name. But this is from the Abortion Diaries. She's a creator of the Abortion Diaries. And she wrote in Salon.com in November 20th, 2004, a piece called The A Word. And here's what she says. So this woman, so the abortion diaries, by the way, is radical pro-abortion group. Okay. So here's what she says. I remember feeling conflicted about the magic of being pregnant. I felt electricity running through my body. Not for a minute did I not think of it as a life. I knew it was a baby. End quote. Right. I don't think I need to add anything to that. Here's Peter singer, right he, you remember peter singer he he is the he's a professor at Princeton University who's most infamous or renowned for defending infanticide publicly, philosophically, academically. He writes pieces defending how if you can kill the baby through point of birth through abortion, there's no reason why you should stop after that point. Those same arguments would justify killing the baby up to one years old so this is shocking. He's Here he's going to say that pro-lifers are right when they point out that there's no fetus fairy that sprinkles magical personhood conferring fairy dust. Like that, that if you can justify killing the baby through point of birth, there's no dividing line that really makes sense to prevent you from also sanctioning the killing of babies after birth. Here's what he says. The liberal search for a morally crucial dividing line between the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to yield any event or stage of development that can bear the weight of separating those with a right to life from those who lack such a right. So I it's kind of like high language, but what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, all of us liberals who defend abortion, we've tried to find like a really clear moral line of demarcation between unborn babies and born babies, a really clear line like at birth or some line somewhere there that that, that, would, that would help us justify the taking of life in the womb, but not outside the womb, like a clear dividing line um, to help bear the weight of separating the unborn babies who don't have a right to life with the born babies who do have a right to life. And he's saying, yeah, we haven't found that line. (laughs) Yeah, because the same arguments that justify abortion justify infanticide as well. Uh, Here's Peter Singer as well in his book, Practical Ethics from 1993, pages 85 through 86. He says, quote, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning we can use it as the equivalent to a member of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt, from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. So you've always heard me say, right, the question of when human life begins, only becomes difficult to answer when you want to start killing people. <laughs> Suddenly, they're like, oh, there's, there's large disagreement in the medical community about when human life begins. It's like, no, there's not. We, you, we all know it's a human being. Uh, and by the way, here's how you prove that. According to, the, according to the law of biogenesis, all living things reproduce after their own kind. So dogs can only procreate dogs. I know it's a shocker. It's very sciencey. Um, cats can only procreate cats, and a man and a woman can only procreate another human being. Um, And Peter Singer saying, well, yeah, I mean, that's obvious from the science. Of course, the question really is which humans have value and which can we kill? We all all know it's a human. We all know it's a human being. Um, Oh, here's Peter Singer again. Yeah, I pulled a lot from that demon. Um, Here's He's going to admit that his same idea should justify infanticide. Ready? When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of the happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second. Therefore, if killing the hemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, it would, according to the total view, be right to kill him." End quote. That's eugenics, right, the hemophiliac infant. The uh, the disabled infant, he calls him. And so if the total happiness will be increased by the second infant and for the family by killing him and having another kid, then that would be right to kill him. That's correct. So uh, what did I say in the intro? Pro-lifers are not the only ones who admit that the same arguments that justify abortion are, justify killing people this side of the womb as well. Now... Yeah. This is a response to Peter Singer. I, I, I snuck this one in here because I think it'll, it'll help equip you. It's, it's not from abortion supporters, but it's a response to some of the Peter Singer quotes I just gave you. So you guys may know the name Robert P. George. If you don't, you should. Or Patrick Lee. Uh, Robert P. George is a renowned conservative thinker and philosopher and professor. And Patrick Lee is as well. And th- they have written extensively on the abortion issue making the philosophical case for life and the philosophical rebuttals to all of the stupid pro-abortion arguments. So this, again, if you're not reading philosophy much, this might be some confusing language, but I'll try to summarize it for you. So listen to what they say in response to Peter Singer. They say, if the moral status conferring attributes... Okay, so (laughs) so let me pause. What does that mean? The the, the left says there are some attributes that confer value and some that don't. What are some examples of this? Well, they say if, if the baby doesn't have any desires in the womb, then it's not a person. Because they, they're arguing that you have to have desires in order to be a person. You know what I mean? That's a that would be a attribute, right? So they're saying there are certain moral status conferring attributes the pro-abort uses to argue who's a person and who isn't. Moral status conferring attributes. So that could be desires, it could be ability to feel pain, it could be consciousness, right? These different check marks the left uses for personhood. So I hope hope you follow what they mean by that. So they say, if the moral status conferring attribute varies in degrees, whether it be the capacity for enjoyment or suffering, or another attribute that comes in varying degrees, then it will follow that some humans will possess that attribute to a lesser extent than some non-human animals. And so inevitably, some interests of some non-human animals will trump the interests of some humans. So what are they saying? They're saying, hey, all of these attributes and functions, they come in different degrees, don't they? Um, think, think about born people. Can we all feel pain to the same degree? Do we, all, do we all have the same pain tolerance? No. Are we all the same degree of conscious? No. Are we all the same degree of self-aware? No right? People with dementia, people in cognitive decline, some people with severe mental disabilities, some people with severe autism, are, do not have the same degree of self-awareness or consciousness that other born people do. Do you see what I mean now that some of these moral status conferring attributes come in varying degrees? We don't share them equally. But our humanity and rights are still shared equally. So what what... Robert P. George and Patrick Lear are saying in responding to people like Peter Singer, is they're saying that there are some severely, maybe cognitively disabled people or people who can't feel pain, who will actually possess that attribute to a lesser extent than some animals. That's true. Some animals would have a greater ability to feel pain, or maybe in the highly intelligent chimpanzee could potentially could potentially have a a greater degree of desires or self-awareness than a severely cognitively disabled human being. So what are they saying? They're saying, whoa, if Peter Singer is grounding human rights and personhood on certain attributes that we don't share equally, on certain attributes that in and of themselves vary and come in different degrees, then it would follow that there would be some cases Where animals would have a greater possession of that moral status-conferring attribute than some human beings. Which would mean that the animal would have more rights. If you grant Peter Singer's premise that personhood and a right to life are based on these certain attributes and functions and accidental properties rather than on being human. So I I hope I was able to break that down for the layman. So so they continue here and they say, also it will follow that some humans will possess the attribute in a higher degree than other humans, with the result that not all humans will be equal in fundamental moral worth and dignity. So back to what I said in the introduction at the top of the show, what did I say? I said pro-lifers aren't the only ones who point out that arguments for abortion work equally well to justify killing infants and the cognitively disabled. And Robert P. George and Patrick Lee are saying, yeah, that's what Peter Singer's arguments do. It results in a destroying of the concept of human equality. Okay, let's move on. That was a little bit more philosophical. Uh, California Medicine, a pro-abortion journal, a journal that favors abortion, wrote in 1970, three years before Roe v. Wade, baby, that everyone knows that human life begins at conception. Let me give you the whole quote. Because what did did the Supreme Court say, by the way, in 1973? If you you guys have studied Roe v. Wade, one of the arguments they made is that people couldn't agree on when the question of when human life begins. There was broad disagreement. Maybe we didn't really know. Um, And so the court shouldn't sort of decide on that disagreement. And yet you've got pro-abortion medical journals saying the complete opposite. So this is from California Medicine, September 1970, in a piece called A New Ethic for for Medicine and Society. This is damning. You ready? Since the old ethic has not yet been fully displaced, it has been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows that human life begins at conception and is continuous, whether intra or extra uterine until death. The very considerable semantic gymnastics, (laughs) which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but taking of a human life, would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. So high language to basically say. Um, So we wanted to separate this idea of abortion from the idea of killing because killing sounds really kind of nasty and we don't really want people associating abortion with the concept of killing. Um, But this has resulted in people avoiding um, the scientific fact, which they say everyone really knows that human life begins at conception. So then what? We have to resort to semantic gymnastics, they say. It's, It's damning language. They finish with this, it is suggested that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary because while a new ethic is being accepted, the old one has not yet been rejected. So what's that old ethic? The Judeo-Christian worldview that, that based the rights of man in our common human nature. What's the new ethic? Humanism. (laughs) Right, Darwinism. 1970, they're saying we all know that human life begins at conception. Isn't that damning? Uh, Dr. Warren Hearn, the abortionist and the author of the textbook Abortion Practice, which is the leading medical textbook that teaches abortion procedures, Dr. Warren Hearn spoke at a Planned Parenthood conference, and he said, quote, we have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denial of an act of destruction by the operator. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. So he calls abortion killing, doesn't he? He says it's an act of destruction. So abortion is not killing because pro-lifers say so, but because one of the leading abortion trainers says so. Anthony Kennedy, remember that name? The Supreme Court Justice, Anthony Kennedy, who's pro-choice, pro-abortion. He said, quote, the fetus in many cases dies just as a human adult or child would die. It bleeds to death as it is torn limb to limb. The fetus can be alive at the beginning of the dismemberment process and can survive for a time while its limbs are being torn off. Wow. That's how pro-abortion Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy described it. How about this New Mexico abortionist who was even more candid, as quoted by Diana Gian- Gianelli in a piece called Abortion Providers Share Inner Conflicts in American Medical News, July 12, 1993. A New Mexico abortionist said, quote, paradoxically, I have angry, angry feelings at myself for feeling good about a technically good procedure which destroys a fetus and kills a baby, end quote. Oh, so it's not just pro-lifers that say it's a baby, and abortion kills a baby. Said the quiet part out loud, I guess. Here's Ronald Dworkin, who wrote a popular book defending abortion (laughs) called Life's Dominion, an argument about abortion, euthanasia, and individual freedom in 1994. And on page three, Ronald Dworkin says, Abortion, which means deliberately killing a developing human embryo, is a choice for death. End quote. Okay. Uh, Ever heard the name Faye Waddleton? She was the president for Planned Parenthood in 1997. Faye Waddleton told Miss Magazine in a 1997 interview, cited in Speaking Frankly the May-June 1997 edition, quote, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus, end quote. Well, she just called abortion killing president of Planned Parenthood. Mary Elizabeth Williams, a pro-abortion advocate and senior writer at Salon, formerly at the New York Times wrote in a piece called What If Abortion Called it called So What If Abortion Ends Life. And she said, quote, the fetus is indeed a life. A life worth sacrificing. End quote. Okay, a few more here. Remember Naomi Wolf? <laughs> One of the most lauded feminists of the last several decades. Naomi Wolf is interesting, she's kind of getting red-pilled right now. She has joined a lot of conservative activists like my pastor Rob McCoy to protest the the vaccine mandates of last year. (laughs) Because she's saying it destroys bodily autonomy, which also ironically led her to support abortion because she says it ruins women's bodily autonomy, but it actually ruins the baby's bodily autonomy. Anyways, very interesting. Just goes to show, always try to extend a hand to people on the other side and see if they'll join you. Because now she's like, in the conservative movement on some things, but she still supports abortion, so she needs to change her mind and come home. But she's a prominent feminist author and abortion supporter, and she wrote in the left-wing piece New Republic basically that pro-choicers deceive themselves when they use dehumanizing speech. And here's what Naomi Wolf, one of the lauded pro-abortion feminists, said. She said, "'Clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions.'" And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. We need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion within a moral framework that admits that the death of the fetus is a real death. (laughs) End quote. Oh for our, Oh for pro-choicers who would be so honest. And then of course, there was Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia was even more blunt in a 2008 salon.com article where she said, "Hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder.. <laughs> the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. She says liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. <laughs> so she's literally saying, well, one, it's murder. <laughs> Two, the liberals should all admit that. And three, it's, it's a whole human being. It's not just, it's not just clumps of tissue. <laughs> wow. And Camille Bagley is still pro abortion, by the way. She's very honest. Um, Jeff McMahon is another pro-abortion philosopher, and we're almost done, guys. I hope this was helpful. Jeff McMahon is another pro-abortion philosopher, and, and he admits what I said earlier about Peter Singer's problem, right, that, that pro-abortion arguments cannot make sense of or defend human equality because if we're all going to be equal, then we have to ground our rights in the only thing we have in common, our human nature, that we're all humans. So the pro-abortion argument that that dehumanizes the unborn inevitably will dehumanize people this side of the womb as well. Right, so ideas have consequences. And Jeff McMahon, who has written books defending abortion from a philosophical framework, literally says, and I'm about to quote him, okay, but he literally says, yeah, I don't know what to do with my own arguments. Frick. Because I don't know how to defend equality anymore. Because my very arguments endanger the very human equality that I'm trying to uphold. So here he is. Quote, all this leaves me profoundly uncomfortable. (laughs) He says, it seems virtually unthinkable to abandon our egalitarian commitments. Yet the challenges to our position, what challenges? From pro-lifers, right? Yet the challenges to our position support skepticism. About the compatibility of our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree. It is hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on distressingly insecure foundations. End quote. Again, it's kind of high language again, but what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, the challenges to our position, they cause me to be skeptical. Right, He says, support skepticism. They cause me to be skeptical. About what? He says, about the compatibility of, so ab- about about combining our beliefs on human equality with our beliefs that all of the properties that I'm grounding moral worth on, they all come in different degrees. Which means that then human equality would come in different degrees. Right. If you ground human rights and the right to life on things that come in varying degrees, it follows that the right to life and human equality come in varying degrees. And he's saying this. He's saying it's hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on insecure foundations. (laughs) Uh, Three more. Anne Freudy. she's the CEO of the largest independent abortion provider in the UK. And she said this in a 2008 debate. We can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil. And we can recognize that it is human life. But they don't care, right? So it's not pro-lifers who say the unborn is a human being. It's the people who kill babies that say it's a human being. Alan Gutmacher, once again, right? Remember who, the guy, the Planned Parenthood president from the 70s who said that the answer to Roe and the answer to keeping Roe and abortion is sex ed? Well, Alan Guttmacher wrote a book called Life in the Making, and on page three, he says regarding whether people know when human life begins, he says, quote, this all seems so simple and evident that it's difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge, end quote. (laughs) <laughs> this all seems so simple and obvious and I don't know when we didn't know this or when we didn't admit this, that human life begins at conception. And lastly, David Boonin. David Boonin, one of the most popular pro-abortion philosophical voices. He's debated um, uh, Hadley Arcus, I believe, and other brilliant pro-life defenders. And he wrote a book called A Defense of Abortion from 2003. And he says, quote, a human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development. So there you go. We're not the only ones who say abortion's killing or that the baby is human from the moment of conception. We're not the only ones who observe that Planned Parenthood uses sex ed and sexually charged conversations to propagandize the youth and sell abortions. We're not the only ones who point out that the arguments for abortion work equally well to justify killing infants and the cognitively disabled. The other side admits it, the other side acknowledges it, and they've done it for decades. So what should that tell you about them? They are evil incarnate. They don't care that we are right and they are wrong. They don't care that their arguments don't hold up in the public square and under discourse and dismemberment (laughs) and evaluation. They don't care anything. They know it all but abortion enables them to play God. Oh yeah. And make a lot of money while doing so. <laughs> Enrich themselves, beyond their wildest daydreams, and enjoy the godlike feeling of taking human life, of being in charge. Do you, re- you guys remember um, the alleged comedian, that redhead alleged comedian um, who like had her own show one time, and it was on Saturday Night Live. I'm forgetting her name right now. But we played a clip of her. She had her own Netflix comedy special. The name will come to me later. You guys will probably remind me. But we covered her on the podcast a couple times. And she said in this Netflix special, she said, my abortion made me feel very powerful. (laughs) And she said, I walked out of that abortion center and I was thinking, move over Morgan Freeman. I am God. She said that in her Netflix comedy special. Yeah, I bet you did feel really powerful. I'm sure you did. Yes, one does feel powerful when they kill other people. Yeah, that happens. And it's evil when the human being was innocent, particularly a baby. So why do they do all this? Why do they admit all the stuff I just showed you, but they don't care and they don't change their minds? Because they feel like God. Yes, they feel very powerful. They feel like the world is at their fingertips when they run, well, in Planned Parenthood's case, the largest, best-funded, and most profitable nonprofit in human history. To end the lives of over 65 million human beings through the abortion industry in America alone since 1973, and to enrich themselves beyond their wildest daydreams. So stop complaining about the hypocritical left. They know all of this that I just went over. They don't care. But at least now you're equipped to speak to those in the squishy middle, right? We know this from the polling. Most people who are pro-choice don't support the Democrat Party's platform position of abortion through point of birth funded by the public dole. That's not the mainstream position, even for pro-choicers. Right? That's right. There's a Gallup poll from 2019 that we sat on the show all the time that found that only 13% of Americans support abortion in the third trimester, which means uh, 87% of people in America don't support the Democrat Party's platform position on abortion. Even if they're not pro-life, they're somewhere in the middle. Well, Cite this to them, shall you? There you go. Now you're equipped. Next time you talk to supporters for abortion who you know don't support the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, AOC position on abortion, now you're equipped to show them that the other side knows exactly what they're doing, they know they're wrong, they know pro-lifers are right, and they don't care. Well, thank you guys for tuning in today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Leave us five stars. It really helps the show show up and more people see it. We really appreciate that. Uh, tune in for our DC footage, man on the street conversations or attempted conversations with people who put megaphones in your face and turn the siren on. Um, very soon, follow us on social media where we're getting shadow banned and heavily censored and PolitiFact writing to me and the uh, whole pieces debunking what is obviously true because they take the Nazi approach to political discourse, which is to what did Joseph Goebbels say to... Um, to prevent the people from experiencing the political consequences of the state's lies. (laughs) So so you have to lie on a lie on a lie. I feel like Elf, you know, you sit on the throne of lies. Well, uh, follow us, share our content to help us uh, debunk those lies. If you want to join the White Rose Resistance and help us educate and expose culture to the evil of abortion until every person has the right to be born... Follow us on Instagram at thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life. Our website, www.thewhiterose.life. And to become an ally of the White Rose Resistance, sign up at $35 a month and you can join me once a month for a donor exclusive hour or long plus live stream on Zoom to get equipped to be a voice for the unborn and connect with other allies around the country. Until next time, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.